the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll be joined today by Anthony Adams, the former Detroit deputy mayor and current challenger to Mayor Mike Duggan. We're going to ask about his plans for the city, his assessment of Duggan's mayorship, and what he thinks of Duggan's refusal to debate ahead of November's election. Then we're going to talk with the author of a new book about civil and voting rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Of the nine people who were hoping to challenge Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan's re-election bid this year, former Deputy Mayor Anthony Adams is the candidate who earned enough votes in the primary to make it onto the November ballot. Adams is, of course, the former Deputy Mayor for Kwame Kilpatrick. He also previously served as executive assistant to Mayor Coleman Young, was a board member and general counsel for Detroit Public Schools, and was interim director of the Detroit Water and Sewage Department. Adams joins me now to talk about his candidacy and why he thinks it's time for a change in Detroit's mayor's office. Uh, Anthony Adams, welcome back to Detroit Today. You there, Anthony? Yes, uh, I'm here. There you are. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. That's it. Thank you for having me. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So, first of all, congratulations on uh, 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 making it through the primary and there onto the November ballot to challenge uh, Mayor Mike Duggan. I want to give you just a, a couple minutes up front to tell our listeners why you're running for mayor and uh, those of our listeners who live in the city why you think they should vote for you. Well, uh, I'm running because uh, we need we need a transformational leader, one who understands that we've got to put people first before profits, that we have to invest in our neighborhoods, and we have to invest in the people who actually live in our neighborhoods. Uh, we spend a lot of time on uh, tax abatements and tax captures and building up and creating a, a nice downtown. But now is really, really, really time to turn our attention to making sure that people can actually stay in their homes. Uh, too many people have lost their homes as a result of tax foreclosure. Uh, too many Detroiters are unable to fix up their homes because there are no programs that are designed to assist them. Uh, too many people are being forced out because of high water rates or high tax rate. And we need someone who understands that these types of problems uh, must be addressed and they have to be addressed at 911 time. Uh, we also need someone who understands and is committed to improving the overall quality of life of the, of the city. We need a city, quite frankly, that works for everyone and uh, not for the privileged class, not for the rich, not for the connected uh, or the mayor's friends, but someone who understands that the, the, the common man in our community needs a lot of attention and we need to do that quick, fast and in a hurry. Mm. So uh, this is the message that you've uh, been putting out there since you got into the race for mayor. Uh, and when we talked before the primary, you said, again, the people in the neighborhoods outside of downtown are desperately calling for a change in direction. But in that primary, Mayor Duggan won 72% of the vote, and that was with nine people challenging him on the ballot. You came in second with 10% of the vote. Uh, so how do you explain Duggan winning such a large majority if, as you say, there's this groundswell of Detroiters who really want something different? Well, I really don't waste any time on what happened in the primary. It was what it was. Uh, the general election is a new race, quite frankly. And given the lack of attention uh, that was given uh, by the media, 
and focusing on this race. I've had a much better time of getting my information and my platform out to people in the community. The reality is that we've only had 14% of the people who actually voted in the primary respecting a much larger number in the, in the general election because the message is resonating. Everything that I have talked about on this campaign uh, since the primary, they've reacted to. And so when I went down, for example, and complained about DTE and the lack of service in Detroit, lo and behold, they announced plans to, to, uh, to correct their service deficiencies in the city. When I complained about the absence of, of programs that are designed to assist Detroiters in staying in their home, lo and behold, uh, they try to create a program, I think very badly designed to provide some relief for taxpayers in the city of Detroit. Uh, when we complain about the lack of, of, of good policing in the city of Detroit, uh, they announced uh, community programs that are supposed to be designed uh, to work uh, in our neighborhoods. The reality is that every issue that I have uh, spoken to, they've attempted to address, which means they're actually listening to what I'm saying. And so they're responding more to me than I'm responding to them. Hmm. And we will see what the numbers say uh, when this election is finally called out. I don't believe that the gap is as wide as people would like to report. Uh, there certainly is a great spin job going on about the sort of the inevitability of my opponent's victory. But the reality is that we won't know until November the 2nd. And I'm very confident that my message is resonating. We're picking up more and more support every day. Hmm. So uh, when I spoke with Mayor Duggan on Mackinac Island last month, uh, we talked about his refusal to debate you. Uh, first, I want to play a little bit of that exchange and uh, and have you react to it. Now, eight years ago, I debated Benny Napoleon. Four years ago, I debated uh, Senator Coleman Young. They had ideas, positive ideas for the city that I disagreed with, but we debated. This campaign has been nothing but spewing hate. It's been us versus them, and it's been venom. Uh, and I will not give a platform for hate. I don't mm. think there's any place for it. I'm not going to support it. And I'm hopeful after the results come in that four years from now, whoever's running, uh, that this uh, spewing of hate and, and pitting people against each other will be gone from Detroit once and for all. Okay, so I want to say up front that I really disagree with the mayor's <laughs> assessment there of of the debating question. Um, and and I you know I'm somebody who who really believes that we ought to have candidates uh, get together and discuss the issues in 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 every election. So I, I just don't I don't support his position on this. But I do want to get your reaction to to what he said there, and specifically to what he's saying about your campaign. He's saying it's about hate speech and that it lacks positive ideas for the city of Detroit. What's your what's your answer? Well, I think it's a bunch of bull, quite frankly. Uh, when I talk about ideas about how we change, for example, the green conservation infrastructure in the city of Detroit, it is a positive idea and quite frankly, it's starkly different uh, from their failure to stop the flooding in our communities. When I talk about how we create more affordable housing and using our affordable housing dollars, it's a creative approach rather than a subsidized approach to building uh, luxury apartments in downtown Detroit. Uh, when I talk about community policing, I'm talking about interventional strategies that are designed to address uh, the systemic issues of poverty uh, and lack of education in our community. And so, you know, he's been given a pass, quite frankly, on how he characterizes things. Uh, there is nothing of the sort that I've talked about in my campaign other than criticizing his failure of leadership in a number of areas. And so when we talk about water affordability and his, and his uh, program designed to cut people's water off, that's a true fact. When I talk about the fact that people have lost their housing as a result of overtaxation and overassessment, that's a fact. That has nothing to do with what he tries to characterize. The guy, quite frankly, is very thin-skinned and likes cheerleaders and people who would cheer him on. I'm not here to cheer him on. I'm here to deconstruct his policies and create a city that works for everyone and stay on message in that regard. Mm. I'm talking with uh, Anthony Adams, a former deputy mayor of Detroit and current candidate for Detroit mayor. We're talking about his campaign to become the mayor of Detroit, to unseat Mike Duggan, who is seeking a third term uh, as mayor. We'd love to hear from you during the conversation, too. Do you have questions uh, for Detroit mayoral candidate Anthony Adams? Do you think the city needs new leadership and a different direction 
uh, in the mayor's office. Uh, also, give us a sense of what you make of the last eight years that uh, Mike Duggan has been mayor here in Detroit. Has the city moved in a positive direction, or do you think we're kind of stuck uh, in in the mud and maybe not making the kind of progress, especially in neighborhoods, uh, that we desperately need? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET uh, Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, and we'll try to work into the conversation that way. Uh, Anthony, I want to go back just for a second to what the mayor said about your campaign, and and I don't want to obviously speak for the mayor; he can speak for himself. But I think what he what one of the things he was trying to say was that. The message of your campaign uh, is one of division uh, and, and one that pits uh, some Detroiters against others, uh, maybe rich against poor, white against black, and that uh, he believes that that the time for that in Detroit has passed, that, that, that voters are uh, focusing on, on something else and he wants to focus on something else. So I, I wonder if you can directly address that criticism well i think you know he first of all i don't accept this criticism i mean he's a guy who runs from me who doesn't want to stand on the stage and debate his policy and that's really the core crux of what uh he's trying to avoid he doesn't like critical examination because he's been given a pass for so long but let's look at systemic racism issues that exist in the city of detroit today Mm -hmm. there was a recent study which announced that blacks were denied mortgages at 40 percent more two times uh what white applicants are denied Mm -hmm. that is a message of systemic racism which he will not speak to because he doesn't understand it when you talk about uh, the lack of educational opportunities in our city and the fact that our schools lag woefully behind uh, in every metric known to man uh, he doesn't want to address that because it's too painful because it doesn't paint the vision of how he wants detroit to be perceived Uh, when you talk about pitting the rich against poor clearly that has been done when you look at how tax captures and abatements are being used in our city and now we have a situation where our libraries are not open we have six libraries open in a city of this size because tax captures and abatements are stripping needed dollars away from the people who actually need those resources the most and then we have a school system uh, which is being underfunded in part because of tax captures and abatement, which is stripping money away from our education of our children. And so there are there are people are being pitted against one another. The rich are being pitted against the poor because resources that should be devoted into our community to build up educational resources to, to have fully functioning libraries are not being done. And these policies need to be addressed. And so there is a division. There is a racial division uh, in the city of Detroit in terms of how black businesses are treated versus white businesses. This is these are real issues. And if we don't confront them now, uh, the narrative that they would like to paint about Detroit uh, will become a false narrative. Mm -hmm. There is a reason why the Detroit uh, Future Cities report indicated that every metric known to man in terms of how you measure the economic vitality of the city. We've lost middle income neighborhoods. Our children's learning uh, issues are, are go uh, unchecked. Uh, crime is out of control. These are real issues. And if he doesn't want to talk about them, that's fine. But I'm here to talk about these issues and offer a creative solution for how they want to be addressed. There is a reason why this guy doesn't want to debate the most qualified candidate that he has ever faced in his entire life. Hmm. Former deputy mayor former executive assistant to a mayor, former general counsel of a major school system, elected school board president, interim director of the water department, former law clerk to a federal district court judge. I have the credentials, I have the intellect, and I have the insight and the connection with the community that I believe we need to move Mm. our city forward. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here uh, on the phones if you have questions for Anthony Adams, who is... uh, uh, the challenger to Mayor Mike Duggan on the November ballot. Uh, before we get to listeners, we got a couple calls that I, I do want to mix into the into the conversation. But I I, I want to get your assessment of the auto insurance overhaul that was signed last year, which the mayor, the current mayor, championed and worked really hard 
to try to get past in Lansing. There are a lot of people who say it hasn't delivered what it should have delivered in terms of savings for Detroiters and that uh, people are being left vulnerable because of uh, the lack of coverage that comes with some of the, the options that people have now. I, I, I wonder if you think we ought to go back at that issue, and if so, h- how would you, how would you uh, produce a different outcome? Well, well, clearly we need to go back to that issue because now what we have is a sort of, I call it a form of insurance apartheid, uh, where, where benefits and programs that are offered to people who live in Detroit are dramatically different and have left a lot of people exposed and has really terminated a lot of coverage, in, especially in the area of long-term care and how people are being addressed. This is something that we have to go back to the legislature and address. There was a great kind job that was run on the public about the benefits of what this program would offer. And at the end of the day, it was a band-aid approach and hasn't produced the level of reduction that, that Detroiters actually need in their insurance. And so I think we, there is a legislative solution that clearly is, is needed. It probably won't occur until the Michigan uh, Redistricting Commission sort of resets districts and we have much more equitable distribution uh, of an electoral base hmm. that is not heavily skewed uh, to, um, I would call it, right-wing reactionary politics, which are not helping further the climate of the state of Michigan. So we clearly need to go back at it. Uh, they need to deconstruct the sales job that was done on the people, and people need to speak up and demand that there be further reform uh, in this insurance system. Uh, do you are you someone who thinks we ought to rethink the no fault system altogether? Well, I mean, I, sure, we certainly need to rethink it um, because we've been at this for so long, and Detroiters have paid an enormously high cost of for insurance in in our city. Um, the sort of the thought leaders that we need on that is what is the, the best way to provide for equitable insurance uh, across the board, uh, recognizing that people have different needs, different wants and different desires. How can we structure and require insurance packages in our state which provide the relief unnecessary? There certainly is not a one size fits all approach, but there should be a cafeteria approach to what people are offered and the services that the state requires insurance providers uh, to do in the state of Michigan. This is a state issue. uh, It's a climate issue. And if we don't address it from that perspective and provide equity for the people who live here, the people in the city of Detroit will continue to pay a high cost of insurance uh, for, for, for services or zip code still because the zip code that I live in, actually, uh, my insurance is low because I'm tied, we're tied to Gross Point on the east side of the city of Detroit. It shouldn't be that way. People should, it should be based on what your risk and what your exposure is, and we need to change and correct that system. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to uh, Helena in Detroit. Helena, welcome to the show. Helena, you probably got to turn your radio down there. Are you there, Helena? <laughs> Are you there, Helena? <laughs> she was listening, but she wasn't listening to the phone. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I also want to want to ask you, Anthony, uh, about uh, the relationships that. Uh, we need in Lansing to get things done here in Detroit. Uh, the mayor's been really focused on on some of those things, um, but uh, what what do you bring to that uh, to that dynamic? Well, I mean, I'm a guy who is a person who who, who gets deals done. Uh, you know, I've had to work with the legislature uh, on a number of different issues throughout my career and don't have any fear uh, of going to Lansing uh, and and working things out. I mean, the reality is that most of the funding formulas that come out of Lansing are a formula-based approach based on population, based on needs. There's nothing special, uh, if you will, that you get from simply being being my opponent because those formulas are set uh, by state law and by statute. I don't know, quite frankly, what we've gotten extra based on his relationship. If If his crowning glory is this insurance reform package that I think he's failed miserably and quite frankly sold the people out in the city of Detroit and sold them a bill of goods with respect to insurance reform. Uh, these are difficult relationships and we know given how the state has been a district 
Uh, it is skewed against policies that will be favorable for the city of Detroit. I don't think we're going to see a major change in that until we actually redistrict in this state to balance out and equalize the district so that we have a better distribution of people throughout our state uh, to provide uh, adequate and equitable uh, representation for the people who live in the city. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Kim in Jefferson Chalmers. Kim, what's on your mind? Hello. Hi. Go ahead, Kim. Hello? Kim. Yep, go ahead, Kim. Yes, I just wanted to ask, um, how does um, Mr. Adams respond to um, claims and threads across next door that state that he's promising to fix things in the city that he has no actual authority to fix in the city, as with um, his claims on what he plans to do with Great Lakes Water Authority. Hmm. Uh, great question, Kim. I, I can't say that I've seen those threads uh, on Nextdoor, but I'm glad you have, and I'm glad you called and, and asked about them. Uh, Anthony, what about oh, yeah, some of the things love, that you're promising? Love, love Go ahead. And I, and I love it because, you know, the whisper campaign against me about what I'm promising um, is, 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 is interesting. So, for example, let's deal with the issue of flooding in Jefferson Chalmers. Mm-hmm. I've suggested is that part of the issue and part of the problem is that we allow too much stormwater uh, runoff to go into our sewer system. And so what I've suggested is that we need to actually create green conservation districts by changing very simple things. For example, the way that our curbs are designed, they're designed to force water into the sewer system. I'm saying that we have we have numerous parks in our city, especially on the east side, that we could begin to divert and reduce the flow of stormwater and runoff into our system. That is a part of, a, of an approach in how you address the issue of flooding. What I've also suggested is that there's been very uh, inadequate maintenance of our sewer system in the city of Detroit. And a major issue as to why we're having flooding is because we have collapsed sewer lines throughout the city, especially on the east side of the city of Detroit. And so what I've suggested is that, one, we have to go out and be aggressive in vacuum-sucking our sewer system, and then we have to run cameras through these systems to see where our sewers have collapsed, the fixed collapsed sewer. Again, a very simple approach to a very complex problem, but it will yield results because if we, in fact, reduce the level of collapsed sewers throughout the city of Detroit, we're going to reduce actually the level of flooding. I've also called for giving uh, businesses, especially those that have a large concrete payment, that they need to construct a water detention basins on their own sites and facilities. They need to be given credit for doing that, which will allow us to divert and take more storm water out of the system. Those are three simple things that are not promises that are easy fixes. The more complicated issue does involve making sure that the um, Oakland and Macomb in particularly uh, construct more stormwater retention sewer systems upstream from the city of Detroit. That is a Great Lakes regional water issue. Mm-hmm. We obviously announced that we will be suing them to deconstruct that bill because we think it was illegal because even though we were under emergency management, an emergency manager could not override the uh, authorization that was needed from the citizens of Detroit uh, to transfer a long-term lease of our system uh, to suburban communities. And so those are easy things to do. People seem to think that the simple uh, isn't isn't possible, but that is how we need to move our direction. People need to get out of their minds. We need these hugely big things to do. And let's focus on the little things, uh, the stormwater runoff in our parks, uh, water detention uh, basins uh, on, on large businesses, fixing collapsed sewer lines, uh, vacuum sucking our, our catch basins. It would do a tremendous amount to impact the level of water flow in the city. And it's a very simple solution that can be enacted. But if you understand how the system works mm-hmm. as being former interim director of that system, when it was a regional water system, mm-hmm. these are simple fixes to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Anthony Adams, former deputy mayor and current challenger to Mayor Mike Duggan, thanks so much for joining us and uh, good luck during the rest of the campaign. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time you've given me to uh, lay out my platform and vision for the city. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we're going to talk with historian and author Dr. Keisha N. Blaine about her new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. A really critical message right now 
given the discussions and the debates that we are having all over this country about voting and voting rights. You don't want to miss this conversation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. What names come to mind when you think of civil rights heroes in our country? Obviously, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks. Those are people whose contributions to racial justice in the 60s cannot and should not be diminished. And those are names that pretty easily come to mind and roll off our tongues. But there are also other pioneering and powerful people who fought for that same cause and won really critical victories who aren't really given the attention they deserve. One of those people is Fannie Lou Hamer. She's a former sharecropper from Mississippi who fought tooth and nail to win the right to vote after being denied her ballot because of an unfair literacy test. Hamer spoke at the 1964 Democratic National Convention and passionately challenged America to live up to its most basic promises. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? That was Fannie Lou Hamer speaking at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. She would have been 104 as of yesterday. And there's a new book out about her life and her legacy titled Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Now, of course, here in the city of Detroit, many of us are really familiar with the name Fannie Lou Hamer because there is a pack named for her that's run by the NAACP, and it focuses on voter education and voting rights. But for a lot of people, this is a name that isn't all that familiar. So here to make us a little more acquainted with Fannie Lou Hamer and her legacy is the author of this new book, award-winning historian Dr. Keisha N. Blaine. Dr. Blaine, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's begin here. Who was Fannie Lou Hamer and what did she represent in the civil rights movement that stood in contrast to some of the other really well-known names uh, that I mentioned? Well, Fannie Lou Hamer was a fierce civil rights activist. Uh, she was also a human rights activist, you know, thought broadly about liberation uh, far beyond uh, the, the confines um, of the, you know, the nation state. Uh, but I think what is so critical in the context of the U.S. Uh, when it comes to Fannie Lou Hamer's story is that she played a pivotal role uh, in the expansion of black voting rights. Uh, one can certainly, um, you know, say that, that Hamer's activism, certainly her, her, bold, her bold testimony, as you just played, laid the groundwork for the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act uh, and Hamer stood apart from so many other civil rights activists. Many of the, the ones you mentioned earlier are individuals, um, you know, representing the black middle class and elite. Uh, and Hamer had a very different background. She grew up um, as a sharecropper. Uh, poverty and hunger really shaped uh, her life, uh, certainly her childhood. But even into uh, adulthood, she, she struggled uh, to make ends meet. And so she had few, lim you know, she had few material resources in that sense, and she also had limited formal education. She had a sixth grade education. Uh, she was a disabled activist, um, you know, who walked with a limp. Uh, there's so many aspects of Hamer's life and experience that distinguished her from uh, many of the folks we tend to talk about, yet uh, she was so influential, so impactful. When she spoke, people listened, and I think, you know, as your you know, listeners already heard she had the ability to capture anyone's attention and to speak truth to power. Mm. 
And it, it's some, there are some very uh, violent and striking events that happen early in Fannie Lou Hamer's life that really inspire this activism. That's not a story that's terribly unusual, especially for the time in which she lived. But there is something, I think, very particularly disturbing, I guess, about the things that, that happened to her. Uh, can, you, can you talk just a little about the things she experienced? Yes, one of the most difficult experiences that she endured uh, took place in 1961, and this is a year before she joined the civil rights movement. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer had been hospitalized. Uh, She had a small uterine tumor, uh, and this was a a non-cancerous tumor, and she went in to have the surgery. The the white doctor who performed the procedure, unbeknownst to Hamer, uh, made the decision to remove her uterus. And so she was uh, the victim of forced sterilization. And uh, to add insult to injury, she didn't even find out immediately after the procedure. She found out through the Whisper Network, uh, through gossip, because the doctor was related to someone on the uh, the plantation where Hamer worked as a sharecropper, and she heard about it. Um, She confronted the doctor. As anyone can imagine, she was absolutely stunned. Uh, she confronted him, demanded an answer. He did not provide an answer or an explanation. And as Hamer pointed out, he didn't have to because this was a practice that was quite common, um, certainly in Mississippi, but it was common in other parts of the South and even in other parts of the nation where um, white doctors, for an array of reasons, would make the decision um, to perform these forced sterilizations because they would determine uh, who they saw as unfit to reproduce. And oftentimes, you know, these were black women, mm-hmm. um, you know, impoverished women who experienced this. Uh, but Hamer took that painful experience uh, and really decided to speak out about it. She uh, spoke across the nation about the practice, and she tried to bring attention to it because she saw it as certainly a part of a larger conversation about state-sanctioned violence, uh, in this case, you know, in the hands of a white doctor. Mm-hmm. And and she was also uh, beaten at some point while she was jailed for daring to sit at a, 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 a restaurant at a bus station in, in Mississippi, um, another experience that lots of African Americans had and uh, were enduring during this this time in our history. Absolutely, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, was traveling with a group of activists, and this is 1963. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, she joined the movement in August 1962, and so she traveled often with activists in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She was a field organizer. And uh, in 1963, she was traveling with the group. Uh, they had just come back from a, a voter, um, voter registration workshop, in fact. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a situation that, as you point out, black uh, activists encountered all the time. But in this particular case, Hamer uh, was accosted. She was arrested along with several activists. She was taken to a Winona jail where she was brutally beaten. Uh, you know, by, I think by the time... Um, Everything had just come to light. I, you know, I think it, it just—it was a traumatic experience for Hamer. Um, you know, it left her with kidney damage, with a blood clot in, in her eye. It left, you know, it worsened the limp that she had um, since childhood. And uh, despite the physical ailments, I think even emotionally, it, it was just a difficult experience for her. But as she often did, she just turned these painful experiences into political action, not easy to do, uh, but she decided that she would speak out about, uh, you know, the violence, and she certainly did so, and, and in fact did so at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to talk about that, uh, that appearance, more about that appearance at the 64 uh, Convention, and, and I guess put it in some context. Uh, of course, in 1964, uh, Lyndon Johnson is uh, trying to run for uh, his first election to be president. He had become president after the Kennedy assassination in 1963. Uh, it's also the year that the Civil Rights Act passes, uh, and there are a lot of tensions around the idea 
that uh, maybe that wasn't enough, that uh, we needed mm-hmm. more kinds of legislation to, to, to deliver justice to, to African-Americans. And there was a split even inside the civil rights movement about timing and pressure and how to make uh, the, the case that, uh, that voting rights was, were, were just as important as what was included in the Civil Rights Act. This is the, the, the setting, I guess, for, for her to, to take center stage in this, in this debate and say the things that she said uh, at the 64 convention. Uh, but, but I'd love for you to talk about how threatening, I guess, uh, that was to the Democratic establishment, uh, to, to the white Democratic establishment, uh, this was a very different approach than uh, some of the other civil rights activists were taking at that point. Absolutely. I think it's important to emphasize that several months before Hamer delivered this powerful speech in Atlantic City, she helped to establish the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Um, and this is a party that was established to really shed the light on uh, the fact that black people uh, in the state of Mississippi, but not exclusively so. I mean, this was a practice uh, throughout the South at the time uh, that black people were being excluded from the Democratic Party on the statewide level. Um, this is a major problem, as, as Hamer pointed out, uh, in, you know, during the 1960s and the early 1960s, an, an estimated 5% of the black population in Mississippi uh, was registered to vote. We certainly understand the implications of that. And so really black people's voices were not being heard. Um, their interests were not being, um, you know, considered, uh, and she wanted to make sure that really the nation knew what was was going on, that the world knew what was going on, and so that's one of the main reasons why she went to Atlantic City. But even more so, she uh, showed up with a delegation demanding that the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party be seated um, instead of the all-white. Um, state, you know, party that had excluded African American um, participation. And, um, you know, this whole encounter was a complicated one because she faced other civil rights activists, uh, including folks like Martin Luther King Jr., um, including folks like Roy Wilkins, and also Baird Rustin, so many others who wanted to find a way to work with the national party. You know, as you point out, they were thinking about the presidential election, you know, they were thinking about long-term goals and it's not that they um, were okay with black exclusion, uh, but but they wanted to they wanted Hamer to accept what amounted to a compromise, which was you know two seats, two symbolic seats, and Hamer refused. And so she found herself um, in, in conflict really with other activists who wanted to um, really make nice, I think, with the, with the National Democratic Party, thinking about the long game, one might say. Uh, but Hamer made it clear that she did not show up for, for two seats, and she refused, refused to acquiesce. Um, but, but in doing so, I think she sent a powerful message about what it means uh, to lay out, on, you know, lay out on the table what it is you need um, and the importance of sticking with your demands, um, because sometimes you simply have to. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue to learn more about Fannie Lou Hamer and her legacy from Dr. Keisha N. Blaine. Uh, We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Call and tell us, do you know the name Fannie Lou Hamer? Did you know it before today? What do you make of her story as a disabled black woman who worked as a sharecropper, faced forced sterilization, and was denied the right to vote? Uh, through things like literacy tests. Uh, Call and also tell us how you think this story relates to the conversations we're having right now about voting rights in America, not just here in Michigan, but all over the country. 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. 
listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Dr. Keisha N. Blaine. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh and the president of the African-American Intellectual History Society. She's got a new book. It's called Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. We're talking about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, the life that she lived, the work that she did as part of the civil rights movement, and the legacy uh, that remains in our country because of the things that she did. I'd love to hear from you as well during this conversation. Is Fannie Lou Hamer a name that you're familiar with? Uh, she is not one of the most recognized civil rights figures from the 1960s. Uh, give us a call and let us know what you know about her life, about her work, and also give us a sense of how you think uh, what she did and what she stood for fits into the context of the debates and discussions we're having now about voting rights uh, in America. As always, the the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and uh, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Let's start with Anne in Waterford. Anne, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Anne. Hi. Go ahead. Hang on. I'm going to put you on my speakerphone. Uh, no, uh, it's better if you don't, but... <laughs> Anne, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi, Anne. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yes, go ahead. I told your staff person that I'm 81. I was born and raised in a small southern town, and I witnessed exactly the type of thing that Ms. Hamer went through. I am so glad that someone is bringing this all up and talking about it. Uh, I was fortunate that I had righteous parents who taught me the right way. And my mother, uh, would she was a teacher, and she would go at night after she got home and teach black children in the area that black people were allowed to live where there was no running water, Mm. no electricity. They were not allowed to vote. My father tried and was working to change the law so that they could vote. And uh, things like the lady that my mother paid to take care of us while she was teaching, uh, her son came down with something. I don't know what it was, but it was life-threatening, and the local hospital wouldn't treat him. Mm. So my mother had to pack us up in the car and drive all the way to Lexington, which was more than 100 miles, uh, to get this child treated and to save his life. Uh, the schools were for black people. There were no, no school books, no running water, no electricity. So why would these children try and get an education? Uh, I'm, can you tell I'm upset? Yeah, no. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really glad you called and, and shared those experiences. I think it's really important for people who do have those memories to keep talking about them and keep reminding those of us who maybe weren't uh, old enough to, to have experiences quite like that, uh, that they that they happened and that they happened not as long ago as we might want to imagine. And, and that, uh, that our country today is not as distant in the way that it operates and the, the, the legacy of those things is still hanging pretty heavily over many of our heads. And I really, really appreciate your listening and I appreciate your calling. Uh, Dr. Blaine, I'll give you a chance to respond to, to what Anne is uh, telling us here. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that immediately came to mind um, was just the circumstances uh, in, home, uh, in Hamer's hometown of Ruleville, uh, Mississippi, today, uh, as I was writing the book, uh, you know, I, I we've lost the connection with uh, Dr. Keisha Blaine. We're gonna we're gonna get her back on the line. But meanwhile, uh, we're gonna go to another caller, Tim in Detroit. Tim, what's on your mind? Okay, oh, wait a minute. Let me turn on your radio. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep, go ahead, yeah. Tim. Yeah, listen, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, uh, obviously the, the woman was a genius, but she has a lot of quotes, uh, uh, particularly, uh, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, but can, mm. can you ask the author to talk about the quote, they know what they did to us, please, if she knows. Uh, yeah, we uh, we are trying to get uh, Dr. Blaine back uh, back on the line, 
And when we do, we'll have her address that. But meanwhile, Tim, I, I wonder if you can talk just a little about how you know about Fannie Lou Hamer. As I said in the open to the conversation, she's not one of the civil rights heroes that many of us were taught about in, in school, for instance. And uh, she's not somebody whose name I think immediately comes to mind. So, so give me a sense of how you know uh, as much as you do about her. Well, I, I pay attention to politics. I haven't uh, did all my life. You know, we didn't get a lot in, in school. But when you look at her history, uh, she's one of the giants of, of American history. You know, what she did standing up to the Democratic Party that most of us belong to now is really legendary. Uh, she, she, it just took a lot of courage for her to do what she did. And I can understand why American history wouldn't want to highlight her given all the cruel things that these government-sanctioned things that happened to her. I can understand why people would want to publicize yeah. her life. Yeah. So, so, Tim, we do have Dr. Blaine back on the line. Uh, do you want to repeat the question that you had for her? Sure, uh, uh, Dr. Blaine. I was uh, uh, asking uh, people are familiar with some of the quotes that she gave, and clearly in my mind she was a genius. But can you talk about the quote she said that they know what they did to us? Oh, um, I'm blanking on which which quote you're referring to. Um, what I will say, though, is most people probably know Fannie Lou Hamer through, um, you know, the, the phrase, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And mm-hmm. I think people say it often, mm-hmm. but may not realize that, you know, they these are Hamer's words, in fact, um, as well as. The, the title of the book, you know, that, you know, whether you are, are black or white, you are not free until I am free. Uh, so so those are the some of the iconic phrases that immediately come to mind. Hmm. Uh, and Dr. Blaine, before we lost uh, your connection, you were talking about the, the, the place that Fannie Lou Hamer grew up and the things that were true about that place uh, when, when she was growing up there. Yes. Uh, so I was talking about the fact that um, Hamer worked so courageously to, you know, to address poverty and hunger uh, in her hometown. And uh, as I was writing the book, I think one of the things that really um, stayed with me was the reality that, you know, economic uh, inequality remains a challenge in Hamer's hometown to this very day. I was mentioning that more than 40 percent of the population, uh, you know, are living under um, below the poverty line, uh, the, and the majority of these residents are, are black and, and Latinx residents. And so, uh, it, it's a reminder that as much as some things have changed, we certainly made progress in, in many areas. The fight still continues. Mm-hmm. So, I, I want to talk before we have to end the show about the the sort of cast forward of. Hamer's work and the 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 person who for me I guess most embodies that work now and and reminds me uh, all the time I think of what Fannie Lou Hamer did is is Stacey Abrams whose whose focus is on voting rights and voter access and voter registration she's building on it feel it feels to me like the the legacy of of Fannie Lou Hamer in a way that's Quite direct, and I see this incredible, I guess, connection between those those two names. Absolutely, I, you know, I think that's true. Um, so many, um, I, you know, as you're talking, I was also thinking about um, just the, the work of, uh, for example, Amy Allison, um, who's really, I think, an important voice in, in this fight for voting rights, too, and Latasha Brown. Like, there, there's just so many remarkable. Um, black women in, in the contemporary moment who I think are carrying forward uh, Hamer's legacy in a powerful way and um, certainly, I think, remind us of the importance of, of you know, pushing to ensure that every American citizen, ha- you know, has access to the vote and that no one should be denied, um, you know, because of their, their race, ethnicity, uh, or gender. Uh, I think these are um, just powerful lessons that we have to hold dear. Mm. Uh, I want to quickly go to Myrtle in Detroit. Myrtle, I've only got about a minute left, but I wanted to get your story in here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. 
Um, I wanted to acknowledge uh, Fannie Lou Hamer's Freedom Farm Cooperative as an urban gardener on the east side. It inspires me mm. to continue to do the work, and the gardens and the farms are entry point into all things related to human rights, social justice, and each one, uh, reach one and teach one. Mm. And I just want to acknowledge uh, our dear sister, Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting connection as well, Myrtle. Not something that I think necessarily comes to people's minds, even when they know Fannie Lou, Lou Hamer. Uh, Dr. Blaine, talk about that, that agricultural connection there. Yes, yes. I, you know, in the book, I have an entire chapter on, on poverty, on economic justice, and I talk about Hamer's Freedom Farm, which he established in the late 1960s. Um, you know, one of the things that Hamer would emphasize over and over again is that uh, as much as you can talk about voting rights, you know, the expansion of black political rights, that's certainly important, but you have to address, uh, you know, the basic needs. You have to address, um, you know, food insecurity. You have to make sure that you are uh, paying attention to uh, the needs on a local level. And, and so that's what she did, you know, as she traveled around the country and she spoke about voting rights. Uh, she um, launched uh, this farm as a way to ensure that people would always have access to the food that they need and also even providing housing, yeah. uh, educational opportunities, job opportunities. It, it was a practical response uh, to the problem of poverty uh, in the Mississippi Delta. And, and she also, I think, uh, ended up uh, you know, inspiring people all across the country. So right. it wasn't just confined uh, to the Mississippi Delta. Sure. The Freedom Farm reached across the nation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Dr. Keisha Blaine, it was great to have you here to talk about Fannie Lou Hamer. Thanks for joining the program. Thank you for having me. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Congressman Peter Meyer is going to join the program for the first time. It'll be an interesting conversation for one of our newest representatives in Washington. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station.